0: talk to you about a new series we're starting this morning called Tough Questions. Tough Questions. Now, as a child, I always had lots of questions. And I'm sure if you think back when you were a kid, you probably had lots of questions too, all kinds of questions. And if you're a parent, you know this more than everyone, right? That kids have questions about Everything. My kids are at this stage where everything is like a why this and why that, you know, and just children have all kinds of questions and we grow up and as we grow up, our questions begin to broaden and expand and they take on new forms, they get deeper and, but I remember um, a few years back, my child, Grant, I was laying in bed with him, putting him down and he always likes, he always likes to ask the deep questions right before bed because he knows he gets to stay up a little bit longer. But uh, we had recently been talking about you know, uh, Jesus and, and various different aspects about him. And he had, I think, learned something whether it was in Sunday school or in class or something about him. And so he asked me this one night, uh, Dad, how does Jesus live in your heart? And I knew the Christian answer, right? In in my head, I knew that if you just, if you pray and you have faith and you ask and you believe that Jesus will come and live in your heart. But I knew that to a four-year-old, cool, that makes zero sense, right? How does someone, so I thought, I sat there for a moment and I didn't wanna just give him like the the standard answer because he still wasn't gonna understand it. Like, that's great that you have faith in him, but still, how does he live in your heart? And so I, I sat there for a moment and I just said, you know what, Grant? I don't know how, God, how Jesus lives in your heart. It's kind of strange. And then I told him, you know, but we can rest assured that he loves us and what the Bible says is true. But then I left there going like, wow. Like some of these questions that like just little children are asking, sometimes they can be really hard to answer. Like how does Jesus live in your heart? Like it's a very abstract concept for a little child, let alone an adult. And there's some things that we see and hear about faith that are a little bit unsettling about God sometimes, aren't there? Or some unanswered questions about God. And as we grow and as we get older and mature, we ask, questions regarding our faith and spirituality. And really, throughout all of history, mankind has been asking plenty of questions about who am I? We're, why am I here? What is our purpose? Or who is God? or These big questions, we can go back to some of our the greatest thinkers and philosophers and theologians of our time. They've been asking questions from the moment that Uh, we've all been here on earth, that big questions get asked regarding these various things. And here, present day, we're learning from some of these great thinkers, and we're able to learn from the Bible, but we still ask questions, don't we? And some of the questions that we ask are tough questions to answer. And so in this series, we're going to look at, we can't look at all the questions. I wish we could. It would just be, to me, I get really excited. I'd be all about, I'd be, you know, all about like a year-long tough questions. Let's examine the scripture and Bible and all different types of things. Let's look at our epistemology. I would just get super excited about that. But I know we can't do that. And we have three weeks. So we're going to look at just some of the more common questions People have regarding faith, spirituality, and our relation to God. And so some of the questions we're going to look into is, one, regarding our suffering and our pain. You know, there's a question that's, how could this all good, all powerful, all knowing God allow the pain and suffering in our world and in my life? Who's ever asked that question before? Come on. We all have asked that question. And we're gonna look at that in this series. We're also gonna look at the question of who is Jesus and why does he still matter? Or why does he matter at all? We're gonna look at that. And this morning, we're gonna look at a common question about is the Bible relevant? Is the Bible relevant? The question goes something like this, and maybe you've been here before, is I respect the Bible, And I suppose that it has things in it to teach us. I think most people would at least agree with that. There's some good stuff in the Bible that can teach us on maybe morality. There's some things that I suppose it can teach us, but isn't it kind of out of date? And since it talks about people who lived a long time ago, and at least that's what it seems to me when I ever read it. You ever? you know, thought that question before or wondered that yourself? Like, it seems a little out of date that a document that was written 2,000 plus years ago is somehow relevant to my daily life here in 2018 in Spokane, Washington. That is a question that I think gets asked a couple different times by a lot of different people. Now, I believe that this question has some uh, uh, foundation to it that kind of means maybe a couple different things. One is, I think when people ask this question, sometimes what they're actually trying to ask is, can I trust the Bible? Like, is the Bible trustworthy? Another, ta- another question that people can ask through this, the foundation of this question, can be more of, are its meanings true? Um, And I believe that those are kind of two of the foundational aspects when we ask this question. And we're gonna look at both of those this morning and we're gonna spend more time on the second than the first. But the Bible does speak of people from hundreds, thousands of years ago. The Bible talks about events uh, that are past, present, and in the future. And we wonder sometimes how is that relevant to us today? But this doesn't make the Bible outdated at all. because The reason is because the Bible tells us things and shows us things that are eternal, meaning that they will last forever. The truths will last forever, like the Bible tells us about God, who God is, and God never changes, it is an eternal principle and concept. From the first verse in Genesis to the final verse in Revelation, God reveals to us who he is, who he is like, his character, purpose towards humanity. The Bible also tells us about human nature which also is eternal, because some may say that yes, we've been become smarter and we're more enlightened people today in 2018, but we don't have to look around very much to understand the condition of the heart has remained the same, hasn't it? Throughout history, you can look back all throughout history and the human condition and the human nature has not changed. It has remained the same and the heart is still the same. And just as the people 2,000 plus years ago needed God, we still need him today. And most of all, the Bible tells us about Jesus Christ, who came from heaven to save us from our sin and to bring us hope in a new life, which will not change. The Bible tells us principles that are eternal and they will not only be eternal today, but they will be in another 2,000 years. But the Bible, You know, uh, if we look at that trustworthiness and and some of those things that I just talked about, I'm going to explain in a moment. We have a reading plan that addresses some of those eternal concepts on who is God and who am I and, you know, some of those uh, eternal concepts. We have a reading plan that I'm going to talk to you about in a minute that I hope you get to dive in this week and just a few simple places in the Bible to dive into some of those eternal concepts. But as we look at the trustworthiness of the Bible, when someone says, well, is it really relevant, sometimes what they mean is, can I trust the Bible? Is it something that I can actually trust? Because if I can't trust it, it doesn't make it very relevant to me in my life. And so we can't spend too much time on this, but I want to give you just a quick illustration and a quick uh, uh, sketch of how we know that we can trust the Bible, okay? And uh, it's from a guy, there's just There is so much work around this. Let me just say this before we go on, is there is so much work around the authenticity of the Bible and scripture that you could go to school your entire life and never amass all the knowledge that is collective throughout the last couple hundred years about the authenticity of the Bible. And so when I talk about some of this stuff today, don't just take my word for it and go like, Yep, it's true, or yep, it's not. Go and research yourself. Go and dive into some of the great works of people throughout history, and read and understand why the Bible has authority and why it is trustworthy and why its authenticity is second to none. Go and do that. And at least to me, I get excited about that, and I believe God will speak to you through you as you examine this book. This book is the most scrutinized, examined text throughout all of uh, history and even in our modern day. And a man uh, that I think illustrated it in a simple way is a man named Hank Hanegraaff. And he had a concept that he calls MAPS. It's an acronym, and this is what it stands for. Manuscripts, archaeology, prophecy, and statistics. These are kind of the the four ways that we know that we can trust the authenticity of the Bible, that it is trustworthy, it is true. So when your friends talk to you about that, you can remember maps. You can go look up some of his work. He's done a lot of great work for the church in recent years. But manuscripts uh, relates to determine the reliability of the manuscript copies in the original documents that we have. And the way that we look at the manuscripts is the bibliographic, the eyewitness, and the external sources of those copies. Now, the manuscripts, the amount that we have, we're able to cross-reference them um, because we have so many. We can understand what is authentic and what is not. So just for an example, we have... Uh, about fourteen thousand copies, or, or or partial copies, of the Old Testament. Fourteen thousand, and we have about uh, five thousand three hundred, uh, maybe five thousand six hundred ish copies of the Greek New Testament. And this this is amazing because the extent and the amount of copies that we have is second to none. There is no other historical text that has the amount of copies that we have. And really, as you look throughout history and the early church fathers and how they copied these texts, uh, especially the New Testament texts, It is is a miracle in what took place. The feat and the amount of financing and the amount of people it took to distribute the New Testament letters and texts and Old Testament scriptures that we have is incomparable until we have the modern day printing press. Like it is just amazing how these copies and these manuscripts got out into the world and they were preserved over time. It is just unfathomable when you really think about what took place. And to put it in relationship, is if you look at some famous other historical texts, like think of Aristotle, his texts. We have 49 copies of his texts that we use throughout education today. And none of them are original. His original copies, they were all burned in a library. Uh, And so, and we didn't find any of his texts until uh, almost a millennia later. And so we have 49 texts that aren't original from Aristotle, and we learn, and he, has, he was one of the great thinkers of our time. I just recently took a philosophy course at Whitworth, and I didn't debate or uh, uh, come against any authenticity of Aristotle's texts. I believe that they, they're really that. What we have is true. We don't need to, to debate, is Aristotle's text are they uh, authentic or not? We have 49 of them. With the Old and New Testament, we have almost 20,000 copies in manuscripts. It is second to none. There is no other historical text on earth today that has the amount of uh, copies that we can look at. Old and New Testament. Uh, the second is the eyewitness accounts, and remember that this is really important that the people who wrote the text were eyewitness accounts, and we have Peter, remember Peter and that he wrote, he says, we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. We have eyewitness accounts from the disciples, and we see these people that what they wrote, Luke, he went and carefully examined stories when he wrote the Gospel of Luke. And then we also have our external accounts. Our external accounts are other people who are looking in, they weren't necessarily eyewitnesses. Did they also um, recognize and they put importance on it? And we have early church fathers like Arrhenius and Tertullian who were great external sources or people that were like Josephus, who were not Christians that wrote about Jesus, and they uh, agreed with events that took place. Through this, we have extremely reliable manuscripts. Second is, in the acronym is archaeology, that uh, over and over again, we have this com- comprehensive field of work that have been doing archaeology over the last uh, uh couple hundred years, and really extensively in the last uh, 50 to 100 years, that we're able to see and understand more of the authenticity of the Bible for a long time. One example is the book of Daniel was disputed. You know, was it really historical? Because for a long time, we didn't have anyone Come up in archaeology named Belshazzar, which was Daniel that was appointed by the king. And so people thought, well, we have no record of this. Is it really a historical account? And it wasn't until a little while back that this was shown. We saw that there was a king who appointed a person named Belshazzar. And so we have that now that archaeology supports the very things that are in the Bible. Third is prophecy. And in the in the acronym prophecy that we're able to see Old Testament and New Testament prophecies, you know, were they predictive and did they come true about its very uh, own prophecy towards? events that took place. Now, some of them haven't yet, and we're still waiting on those, but we have some really comprehensive prophecy that took place in the Old Testament about Jesus. Let's just look at a few of them. A couple things that were prophesied well before Jesus ever was born here on this earth was that this person who Jesus had to be a descendant from Abraham and Isaac, had to be born in Bethlehem. They had to be crucified next to criminals. They were to have pierced hands and feet and gambling of their clothes. And we see these prophecies come true through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. We also see the prophecies that Jesus made about his own death, life, and resurrection. And we see prophecies uh, about the future as well. And lastly in the MAPS acronym is the STATISTICS. That's the S part, statistics, which is the Bible was written over the span of about 1,500 to 2,000 years by 40 different authors in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, and yet there's one consistent thread that runs through all of it, which is God's redemptive story of humanity. The statistical probability over 2,000 years that 40 different authors from different regions of our world, from different languages that would write a, a comprehensive, cohesive text is just not statistically probable. But we have it here, and that would end the statistics. Maps, there you go. Learn it. It's good stuff. Go look it up yourself. I believe that we have a very reliable and trustworthy document, very reliable. And if you're willing to listen to your philosophy professor on Aristotle or Homer or Plato, please listen to at least the authenticity of the Bible as well. But let's turn our attention to that second question underneath the, is the Bible relevant, which is, does it really have meaning for us today? It was written 2000 years ago. Does it really have meaning for where we are at? And let me just start by saying, as we begin to lay a foundation for it to answer this question is this, is that the early church was not founded upon the Bible. As we look at some of those early church fathers like Tertullian or Arrhenius and some of the other people, or we look at the apostles, disciples, or we look at the apostle Paul who hated Christians but then was radically changed and all his letters, when we look at this book, the early church never was founded upon this book. That it wasn't, this book was not canonized until about 300, 350 AD. So the church just exploded from the time of the death and resurrection of Jesus. It just exploded throughout all the uh, regions surrounding uh, Jerusalem and, uh, and all all over the, the, the known world at the time. It just exploded and they didn't have the Bible to do it. What took place was what was actually debated about during the original church was not, is is the bible or scripture true? What was debated was an event that took place, which was did Jesus rise from the dead? That was the question that people debated, and through his death and resurrection the church was born. And the church exploded Yes, they had some letters that were floating around, and yes, they had Old Testament scripture which was only found in the synagogue, but this uh, Christianity exploded based off of Jesus' life, his death, and resurrection. Here's what Paul writes to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 15. He sums this up, he says, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our Preaching preaching is useless and so is your faith. This was the debated topic in which Christianity was founded upon, which was this man who said he was the Messiah, the Christ, and he lived and he died and he resurrected from the dead. And the church was born and people's lives were forever changed. The way that they viewed their own relationship with God, the way they lived their life was changed because of an event that took place who was Jesus and his death and resurrection. We see this in people like Saul her, who persecuted Christians, yet his life was radically changed and then wrote a, the majority of the New Testament in which we have because of the transformative power of Jesus Christ. This event was so powerful, it shaped history up into the moment we're sitting right now. This is the whole reason we have the New Testament, was Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. We have this amazing book which tells us God's redemptive story and how we can know him and be made right with him, and that will never change. That is relevant to you and to me, that if Jesus was raised from the dead, then this book is the most precious thing you could ever hold. That the church will not live or die based off of the Bible, which is really, really good, It is based off of, was Jesus right? Did Jesus die and raise from the dead? Did he pay the penalty of your sin? And if he did, then that is a very relevant question for us to ask. Am I receiving what Christ died for? And I believe this book The Bible shows us so much and unfolds God's story for us, which will always remain relevant. That God breathed this book into life. We see in in 2 Timothy that it says all scripture is God breathed and it's uh, breathed out for you and for me that as we open its pages and as we read it, we're able to take in God's breath of life. That it was breathed out, it was inspired. Paul talks about this in his writings where he says, we didn't just write it out of our own human nature, but it was inspired by the Holy Spirit that it is profitable to us. When we read this, not only do we take in God's breath of life, but it's profitable that we might be taught more, that it's good for correction and reproof and training in righteousness, that we might do good things. And which leads us to the, another thing is that there's timeless truths in here. There's timeless truths in the Bible. Think of one timeless truth with, with me found in Luke chapter 10 about the Good Samaritan you remember that story? If you don't, let me explain it to you one more time. That Luke uh, writes this uh, depiction of Jesus meeting with a, uh, uh, a person who asks him, "How what's the greatest commandment? And it said that, you know, to love your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love, love your neighbor as yourself. And this man says to Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? And so Jesus goes on to depict this story of a Jew who was walking down the road and then he was met by some robbers and he was beat and and they stripped him of his clothes and threw him on the side of the road to be left for dead. And then three different people came passing this man. First was a priest. A priest walked past this man and did nothing. And then second was a Levite. And he walked past this man and did nothing. And then third was a Samaritan. Samaritans hated Jews and Jews hated Samaritans. And this Samaritan walks and sees this broken, beaten, bloodied Jew and he picks him up and he puts him on his own horse and or donkey and brings him to this inn. He pay, cares for him. He tends to his wounds and his needs. He pays for the, the price of the inn and then gives the innkeeper extra money and says, whatever you need to do to care for this man, I will pay it in full. And then Jesus asks the Samaritan, so who do you think in here did it right? And the man says, oh, it was the person who showed the Jew mercy. And then Jesus says, you go and do likewise. You go and do likewise. Jesus essentially tells us to love our neighbor Well that we are to love all people, even the people you hate the most, we are to love all people. Tell me that is not relevant to our current climate of our culture today. Is that not relevant today where we live in uh, the United States and globally, that we are to love all people? Everyone is our neighbor. There are timeless truths found in the Bible. Uh, this is why we want people to not only take these timeless truths and understand it and get it but we also want God's breath of life in you that these are God's words breathed out for you and for me and so we've put a bible reading plan together like I was telling you earlier that on there is a card it's a card and it's going to follow each series we do throughout the year and this one on tough questions it has five readings a week for you and the readings this week are these it's, it'll say um, who is God? And it'll give you just a simple passage to read and reflect on it. Second is, who am I? And then how can we know God? How can we relate to God? And how can we relate to others? These eternal truths in there. And then next week when we talk about does Jesus matter, it's going to give you some really great passages to think about in Jesus. And then in three weeks on the Uh, Why does God allow pain and suffering? It's gonna give you some really good things to digest. The timeless truths, the eternal principles, but God's breath of life that you would take in your heart. And you'll be able to grab one of those as you walk out. Be in the word, know it more and more. These timeless truths, these eternal principles, God's breath, we need it. Here's what Billy Graham said. He said, we are the Bibles that people are reading. Is that not true? You and me, we are the Bibles that people are reading. And as you take this in and you live it out in your life, the people around you are reading you. And so if I was to ask you now, if someone was to read you, what would they read? Would they read about the love of Christ? Would they read about how you love your neighbor well? These words in here that are breathed out by God change our life in the very community around us. Last piece is I believe that the Bible goes far more than just giving us timeless truths and giving us eternal principles. But the Bible is able to get at and understand the depth of, of your soul, because you have a creator who created you in in his image, and he knows you, he knit you together, and only his words can get at the depth of your soul. So here's what the writer of Hebrews said, he said, for the word of God is living and active. This document, what we have here, is a living, active document that is relevant for us today. But then the writer says that it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, that God's word can, can find the very depth of your soul and spirit and bring life to it, that nothing else can do. And of joints and of marrow discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart that what we have in God's word is not him understanding human nature, but he gives us the answer to the brokenness in our own human nature. The Bible uncovers the condition of the heart. And I believe that many times we resist the Bible and we resist its relevancy because if Jesus said what he said was true and if he did uh, uh, rise from the dead, and it was all true, well, then what does that mean? That means that I'm guilty. That means that I'm held accountable. And that means that I'm wrong. And we don't like to come face-to-face with that many times. And so we resist its relevancy. And we resist the truth that's found in there because what it says is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Another quote by Billy Graham is he says that the cross is offensive. Because it makes us come face to face with our own guilt, shame, mistakes, and sin. And that if this is true, and if Jesus actually did die on a cross for you and for me, then it means that I am guilty. And it means that I'm held accountable by the objective standard of not you and me or government, but by the objective standard of God. And so we resist that many times. But here's the really good news found in all of that, is that when we admit our resistance to God and to his Bible, And when we admit our resistance and not God's existence or Bible relevance, then God is able to come in and do something that was amazing. Because if Jesus really did rise from the dead, and if really the words that are on these pages are true, then that means everything changes. Because if Jesus was raised from the dead, that means that we have hope. That means that we have forgiveness. That means that we can have peace with God. That means that we can have the answer to our world's problems of sickness and greed and pride and corruption and pain and suffering. And we have an eternal home in heaven with Jesus one day. That if these words are true and we can admit our resistance to them, then there is an answer to our very own soul, which brings us meaning and purpose. Because here is what Romans says. It says, but God demonstrated his own love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrated his love for you and me, which is the answer to our mistakes and our brokenness. It is the answer to the very pain that we feel in this world that brings us hope, that when we're able to digest these very words, it is not just a historical record of the Western civilization, but it is God's breath of life in you, that it can bring a soul to life. It can bring spirit from death to life. And that God demonstrated his love for you by dying for you and for me. That same love and forgiveness that we see in these words is still available today. Those very same words are still available that Christ died for you and for me. And that's far more than just a relevant concept. That requires celebration and joy that we can be made whole eternally forever. These words are powerful and important. They're relevant not only to our own morality, but to our eternal state and soul. Because one day, you and I will come face to face with our own sin and shame. We will come face to face to the reality of the penalty that we will have to pay apart from knowing Jesus. One day you will be faced with that. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And without him, you will never be made right in the eyes of God. It will not happen. You need him. I need him. And without him dying on the cross and being raised again, that new life you cannot receive. And that is the most powerful, relevant message I could give you through these words is that one day you'll come face to face, and without knowing Jesus and accepting the sacrifice that He paid for you, you will not be able to be with Him forever. But God sent His Son Jesus so you could have an eternal home and have peace with God and receive His mercy and grace, that you don't have to live with guilt or shame, but you can receive hope. In a new life. Would you pray with me? And as you pray, as we pray, I just want you to reflect, knowing God is still telling his story. It's unfolding right now before you. That this story of the pursuit of God towards humanity, that he might be in relationship with them and love them into relationship with him. And if this is you and you've never asked Jesus to come into your heart, I want to give you that opportunity right now. And the Bible tells us that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart, you will be saved. You will be forgiven and you can have a new life. And if that's you, would you pray this prayer with me? God, I want to know you. God, would you forgive me of my mistakes and of my sin? God, I want to trust you. Would you come into my life and be the Lord and Savior of my life? I want to follow you to the end of my days. I want to take your word in, and I want to have the breath of life that you give. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for dying for me. I receive you this morning. God, thank you for how good you are. God, impress upon our heart to love you more, to read your word more. We love you, God, and we pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Nade. Let's stand up together. Remember, if you'd like one of these uh, Bible reading cards, make sure... and. Pick it up on your way out. Our ushers will have them for you. If you're new to the church or maybe one of our returning college students or young adults, I'll be right over here and our young adults pastor will be with me underneath that monitor. Love to meet you and talk to you for a couple moments. Talk to you about how you can connect here at the church. If you need prayer, our prayer team is over there every single week ready to pray with you. So go have a great week, everybody. We'll see you next week.